Welcome to the King's Cast, dynamic teaching recorded live at King's Church in Cambridge, England. We hope you are blessed and challenged by listening to the ministry today. And now, here's the broadcast. Well, it's my joy to share the Word of God. So, if you have a Bible, I'm going to read from Philippine, uh, sorry, the book of Acts chapter 6. It's based in Philippines. Uh, the book of Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Um, it'll come up on the screen if you're a guest or you don't have a Bible. If you do have a Bible, um, then turn it up and read it with me. So Acts chapter 16. And we'll read from verse 16. Now let, just, let me just set you a little bit of context just for speed. Um, Paul and some of his team uh, and Silas and Dr. Luke are in his team at this moment are out doing mission, they're out planting churches. As they're out doing that, they try to head north uh, with a view probably to going back east. But as they try to go north, the Holy Spirit stops them. And Paul has the sense to listen to that. And then he has another little go, just to make sure, and it says the Spirit of Jesus stopped them. So, so he, he, he gets the message, and instead of going north and probably east, he goes west to the city of Troas, which is right on the coast. And it's while he's at Troas, he receives what we sometimes call the Macedonian call. Where in a dream, he sees a man from Macedonia, funnily enough, um, calling him and inviting him over to preach the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul does. Paul, with his team, get on a boat and cross over into what we would call today Europe. And so uh, the gospel comes powerfully to Europe. Uh, and, and Paul begins to plant churches. So instead of going back east, the gospel starts to go west. And he arrives at a city called Philippi. And he starts to preach there. God opens the heart of a woman called Lydia, a very successful businesswoman. She becomes the first official European convert, a female businesswoman. There's a thought. And uh, she opens up her home. And it's, it's in her home that the church in Philippi is planted. And as Paul is going around the city, a young woman who's demonized sort of follows him around and she speaks out this proclamation, essentially saying, these are men of God and you should listen to them. And for some reason, Paul gets really irritated with the girl. And in a moment of irritation, he turns around and he casts the demon out of her that is causing her to tell people's fortunes. Now, you can imagine that the business leaders of that city are very annoyed because they're making a fortune out of this girl. Uh, and so they are so annoyed that they essentially uh, get Paul and Silas thrown into prison, is, is the long and the short of it. And we pick the story up at this point, all right? So I just set that a wee bit of context for what I'm about to say. So it says this, chapter 16, verse 16. Uh, sorry, I'll, I'll, read, I'll jump down to verse uh, 25 because they're now in prison, okay? And it says this, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once, the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. 
The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they began to speak the word of the Lord to him and all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer was told, uh, sorry, so the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. I think Paul was Irish, uh, actually. Uh, the officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. Remarkable, remarkable little story. And within this story, there are a number of really powerful details that I want to draw your attention to. And actually, uh, within the, the, the sort of uh, initial sense of the story, we, we get something of the time span. Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. Um, and then it says this in, in the context of verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas we're praying and singing hymns to God. And then if you read 10 verses further down, it says this in verse 35, when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. Okay, now here's what I want you to see. Here's, here's what we're going to hang around for the next few minutes. Paul and Silas achieved freedom before they got released. So they were free at midnight, but they got released at daylight. All right? We, it's just dead easy to miss that detail. But Dr. Luke puts that in, I think, for a reason. Dr. Luke's a man of detail. So he's recording the story for us. And there's something about the chronology of this story he wants us to get. Because that's why he puts it in. It's, it's there to make me and you register something. Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God at midnight but they're not released until daylight. Powerful little story. And I think there's a principle here that I want to just encourage you with off the back of this morning if you were here, but if you weren't here, this will be a standalone encouragement to you that actually there is a principle here that we can be free before we're released. That, that actually we can discover a freedom in a moment before we get released from a moment. So Paul and Silas are free, but technically speaking, they're still in jail, still in, still in prison. But, but the, when we read the story, up until the end of the story, if we didn't know where they were, some of the details, if you didn't know they were in prison, that that was the setting of the story, and you jumped into it at the point where 
they're speaking to the jailer and having dinner with the jailer and baptizing the jailer's family, you wouldn't know they were in jail. It looks like they're free men, but they're actually imprisoned. Yet they live free in that prison context. Something happens in them before it happens to them. And sometimes in life, especially when we're in sort of prison type situations, we're hoping for something to happen to us. And I get that. I'm all in for that. Something happened to us. And and usually what we mean by that is God's going to do something and get us out. God's going to bless us. God's going to help us. God's going to give us the answer that we want. And we believe that stuff. But sometimes, sometimes, sometimes God is more interested in doing something in us before he does something for us. Amen? Now, I'm not minimizing and I'm not trying to sort of give a soft answer to a difficult situation. But, but what I am trying to say is this. There's a principle that repeats over and over and over again in the Bible. And we see it here. And it's this. That sometimes we can be free in God before we get the actual release from the circumstance that we're hoping to get release from. So, so let me apply it right down to some of the things we've been praying for today. You can be free in your spirit before we get release from our sickness. Amen? Now, that was a bit quieter. You like, you like the general idea. That was a bit quieter. You can, be, you can be free in your spirit before you get a breakthrough of release in your finance. You can be free for your children before you see a change in their behavior. Yes? So, so actually, the, the, this is a powerful idea of finding a measure of freedom before we get the outcome, before someone turns the key and opens the door and lets us out. That's the bit we all want. I, I get that. But, but what do we do while we're waiting for the door to open? And I want you to notice Paul and Silas aren't waiting for the door to open. As far as they know, the door may never open. So, so we, because we've read the end of the story, we know the door does open, but they don't know that. But they're not waiting for someone to open the door. They're doing something in this prison that is actually opening a spiritual door, a supernatural door. So a supernatural door opens before a physical door opens. Incredible idea within that context. And that's something I, I want us to dwell on just for a little minute, because I think one of the keys that brought freedom to Paul and Silas before they got released was, and I'll call it this, the practice of praise. I don't want that to sound too mechanical, but actually I I do want it to sound very intentional. The practice of praise is one of the great keys to getting a supernatural freedom before a physical release. Amen? Now, now listen, I, I, I became a Christian at eight, been in Christian ministry 30 years, uh, and I think I've learned more about the power of this in the last three to four years at an experiential level than I knew in all the years before. Now, if you'd have asked me 10, 15 years ago, the theology of the power of praise, I'd have given you chapter and verse, because I, I knew that. And I believed, I believed it back then, all right? 
But in the last three to four years, uh, that, that believing in it in terms of, I think I understand the theology of that, has actually translated into a powerful experiential reality. That actually, uh, we, we have come to literally experience the fullness of the power of this thing, of, of practicing praise before we get release. Of practicing to praise God so that there is a freedom that happens in us before there is a release happening to us and for us. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying this to minimize the challenge. I'm actually saying this to bring the challenge to a reality to each one of us. Some of us are sitting in situations that we would love to see the release from. And for one reason or another, it's not coming. So the question is, what are we going to do while we're waiting? And, and I want to encourage you to take some guidance from Paul and Silas here who do something while they're waiting. They're not waiting for the key to turn. They're doing something, and if the key turns, bonus. But if it doesn't turn, they're still free. Come on. You with me? And so they practice praise in this context. Something powerful happens coincidentally or supernaturally as they're praising God. An earthquake happens, and the prison doors fly open. And we have this amazing weird, glorious, strange moment that takes place in the midst of this, this jail. So, so how can you and I practice praise in such a way so that so actually we experience a measure of freedom? Why is the practice of praise so powerful? Well, from this story, I want to give you three ideas that I hope will encourage you. Maybe one of them will hit the mark. Maybe two of them. Maybe all three will help you. But three ideas from this passage. Here's the first thing I want you to see. The practice of praise is powerful because it places God over self. Now, I know you know this. And if you've been in this church any length of time with your commitment to worship and praise, you know this. But let me say it again. The practice of praise is powerful because it places God over self. When you place God over self, you're free before you're released. Every time. When God gets placed over self, it will bring you to freedom even if you don't get released. Are you with me? Now look at what it says in verse 25. Note the detail. Paul and Silas we're praying and singing hymns to God. Now note that. Dr. Luke puts that detail in. Why does he put it in? Because he wants everybody who reads it in the future to understand they weren't just praying. Billions of people pray. They weren't just singing. They were praying and singing to God. That's the point. That, that actually, they are literally, in their moment of pain, they are exalting God above themselves. Note that. He doesn't just say singing and praying. He says singing, praying to God. Thank God for music therapy. There's a whole science around it now. And I believe music has the power to, to help and soothe and bless people. Absolutely. But imagine, imagine music that is infused with the God factor. Imagine, imagine praise that actually is to God. It's not just music. It's not just songs. It's not just a nice tune. There is a definite focus and purpose behind this particular declaration. It is singing hymns to God that lifted them. If we can learn to sing 
when we're not winning, we'll be free before we're released. Come on now. I'm, I'm, I'm a football fan. I'm a Liverpool fan. And, and, and when your team's losing, one of the taunts that often comes your way is, you only sing when you're winning. Sing when you're winning. Say, I could sing it for you, but I won't. But, but you only sing when you... And the idea is that, that any football team wants to quieten the, the opposition crowd. Because when you dominate the team, then generally speaking, their supporters quieten down. Right? But great supporters. Great supporters. Sing when their team is losing. This, this, man's, this man's an Arsenal fan, aren't you? They've had a bad seven days, right? They hate all things blue and all things Manchester. Um, so last Sunday, I mean, you, you got a bit of a stuffing last Sunday, didn't you? you? Absolutely got your pan kicked in by Manchester City at Wembley to lose the League Cup. Then four days later, they have to do it all again at the Emirates. And I watched the highlights. I watched the highlights of the Emirates, and I noticed two things at the Emirates, which was very disturbing if you're an Arsenal fan. Number one, the empty seats. I've never seen so many empty seats in the highlights of an Arsenal game ever. Right? That's the first thing. Second thing, when the game finished, they booed. They're not great fans. All right? Now listen, listen, I understand why they're booing. I understand why the seats are empty. But that's the whole point. If you only sing when you're winning, you're not really a fan. But true fans will sing even when they're not winning. They'll keep singing. Why? Because they love their team. As I say, I'm a Liverpool fan. The most famous game in the history of Liverpool. It's called the Miracle of Istanbul. That's what it's actually called. The Miracle of Istanbul. Liverpool were losing in the European Cup final, 2005. They were losing 3-0 at halftime. It was a massacre. AC Milan were stuffing us. Absolutely killing us. And I remember watching the game. I remember halftime going into my kitchen, uh, texting my friend in Zimbabwe who's a Liverpool fanatic, saying, I found some chocolate, I'm going to eat it, and then I'm going to bed. <laughs> right? And I remember coming back into the living room and I thought, well, I'll, I'll watch it a few more minutes. And, and Rafa Benitez had, had changed the, 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 the sort of structure of the team. They were, they were looking a bit better. I thought, I'll hang around, I'll hang around. And Steven Gerrard scored the header. Boom! 56 minutes, boom, in the net, 3-1. Six minutes later, six minutes later, 3-3. I couldn't believe it. I was jumping. I, I woke the whole neighborhood up. I was screaming that loud. It was amazing. And then we went on to win it on penalties. They talk about the miracle of Istanbul. But here's the thing you won't know. You will not know this, but I know this, right? Because I've got the DVD. The miracle of Istanbul. <laughs> All through halftime, when the players were in the changing rooms, the Liverpool supporters never stopped singing. The footballers said we could hear them singing in the changing room. Come on. That's why Jesus supports Liverpool. It's, 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 You'll never walk alone. Come on. 
come on, it's all going on. You know it's true, right? It's incredible. Now imagine what that's going to do to those players to hear their fans singing, they've just been massacred. It was terrible. And yet, and yet they won the cup. A miracle. See, if you only sing when you're winning, you'll never be free before you're released. That's the truth. Singing when you're winning is good. Singing when you're not winning is great. When you sing when you're not winning, you go from championship to Premier League. You're a Premier League Christian. You're a Premier League spirituality if you can truly sing when, it's not, when you're not winning, when it looks like you're losing. And here's Paul and Silas. And if me and you didn't know who they were and we were just beamed into this prison in Doctor Who's TARDIS and we stepped out of the police box and looked at these two men, we would think they're losing. But they were men of God. In fact, they were in Philippi for exactly the right reasons. God told them to go. They obeyed the word of the Lord. Everything they'd been asked to do by Jesus, they did. And yet they find themselves in a prison. But if me and you had just stepped into the story, at verse 25, it looks like these two men are losers. But what do they do when it looks like they're losing? They sing. They sing. They sing. And they don't just sing any old song. They don't just find a pop song or a nice wee tune. But they sing hymns to God. They drag something out of the depths of their spirit. They don't have hymn books. They don't have a beautiful video projector to help them. They don't have a magnificent band to coerce them. They've just got this manky cell they're in. So something's coming out from inside them. And they drag some hymns out of their spirit. And they sing to God. My goodness. Paul, later on, writes to this church. So, so years after this, Paul writes back to this church, and here's what he says to them. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Who knows? Nobody's given Paul pushback on this. Why? Because Paul's proved it. Proved it. In fact, the irony of the letter to the Philippines is that he writes it from another prison. Paul clearly loved prisons. And, uh, and so he writes to them. For, so he writes from a prison to a church that, that was empowered partly through this prison experience. And he says to them, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. See, you've got to learn to sing when you're not winning. May 2015, Don and I received a telephone call, changed our lives. I'd love to tell you it was because, you know, my granny left me 10 million quid. Uh, but actually, it was, it, was, it was a horrific call. We were actually on holiday and uh, down in, in, in the Cornwall area. We, we picked up a call, and it was from my son, who was then just turned 18, May 2015, to tell us that he had been arrested uh, by the police and that he was facing uh, charges for a very serious crime. Now, at that moment, uh, we, just, we just sort of melted, didn't we? And we were numb. I remember somehow we found our way to a coffee shop in that little town. I can't even remember ordering the coffee. I don't know what I did. Whether I spoke in English or tongues or Klingon. I don't know what I did. But somehow I managed to get us some coffees. And we sat there absolutely numb. Long story short, uh, we, we, we got back home and started to catch our breath and all of this. 
Uh, and, then, and then we're told that, that although there's no evidence, and, and, and from the very outset, Simeon said he didn't do it. It was his word against this accusation that was put uh, against him. Uh, we sat with a lawyer, and the lawyer told us that if, if your son goes to court and he's found guilty, he'll go to jail for seven years. Now, it's hard to tell you, maybe some of you have experienced this, it's just hard to commute to you uh, what goes through your head when a lawyer tells you your son could go to jail for seven years. That was not in our plan. When he was born and I held him up to Jesus and offered him to Jesus, the first human to pick him up, and I literally give him to Jesus, that was not in the plan. And yet we found ourselves in this journey. And people kept saying to us, look, there's no evidence. It'll go away. This is just one of those things. These things happen. Well, it didn't go away. It kept going. And 18 months later, we found ourselves in Crown Court in Birmingham on a four to five day trial. And if my son's found guilty, he's going to prison for seven years. It was an incredible Incredible experience. It's, it was totally, totally surreal. And, and I remember in the midst of that, going to the Lord for a word. So when this kicks off, I mean, I, I, you know, my, my training, my upbringing, the, the way my parents have raised me, the way we've lived as a family, moments like this come, we just run to the presence of God like we've been singing about today. We run to the word of God. God, God, I need something from you. Lord, please help me. And the Lord gave me a word. Now, the word I wanted was... The SAS angels are on the way. You're about to be rescued any minute, and it'll make a great story over dinner. You know, it's that sort of, that's the word I sort of want from the Lord. But the Lord gave me this word from Psalm 34. And here, here's how Psalm 34 starts. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. He goes on to say this, my soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Psalm 34 became my guardian psalm for the next 18 months. I spent my 50th birthday in Crown Court. Remember my kids saying when I was 48, dad, we want to give you a memorable 50th. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for that. I turned 51 last November, and the kids said, what do you want for your birthday? I said, a really quiet day. A really, really boring, quiet day is absolutely fine. Yes? Now, the word I wanted was, I'll rescue you. The word God gave me was, praise me. I didn't want to hear that. Phil, I did not want to hear that. I'm I'm just being really honest with you. But the next 18 months, I learned things about praising God I never dreamed possible. I, I, you know, I, I'm one of those people, I get up in the morning very early. I'm a morning sort of a person, and I love my early morning devotions. Uh, but, but I'm also one of those people, some of you are like me, the minute I wake up, my brain fires up. So my brain just goes into overdrive. I literally have to train my brain not to think first thing in the morning. I, you know, I'm already into my to-do list first thing in the morning. Who's with me? Anybody? All right, a few of you, a few of you know the joy of that. My brain's literally, so, so literally I wake up in the morning and the first thing that's in my head is this situation. I'm walking to my dressing gown, hanging up behind the door, uh, uh, and already I'm having to fight this thing. 
And I'd love to tell you that walking down the stairs, you know, Gabriel was waiting at the bottom with my first cup of coffee of the day. That the, the angelic Hillsong band were playing in the corner waiting for me. I want to tell you, there were days I went down to that living room and into that sacred space that I have where I open up the Bible, where I worship Jesus, where I do the routines that I've done for years upon years upon years, and I felt nothing. Not a thing. And yet time after time after time, Time without number, and I'm not making this up because it's a sermon. Time without number, six o'clock in the morning, I felt, please forgive me, I felt dead. Honestly, emotionally shot. And by 7.30 in the morning, life had come into me. And it wasn't because of my personality type, just pulling myself up. It was because between 6 and 7.30, I spent almost the entire time giving devotional worship and praise to the Lord in the context of His Word and the context of His presence. I just kept lifting Him up in the midst of that. And time after time after time, the power of lifting God over self helped me to get free before we got released. Because literally as we got closer and closer to the court date. It just got worse and worse and worse. And humanly we were losing. And yet God said sing. 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 Do you know I learned to sing. And I didn't want to sing. I learned to sing when there was no music. I learned to sing when the last thing I felt like doing was singing. But we, we learned to sing. We learned a new song. We learned a new confession in the midst of our journey. Can I just say to someone here today, and, and as we close our service later on in a few moments, that's what we're going to do. We're going to sing. We're going to sing over our circumstances. And you see, it feels weird. It seems counterintuitive. It seems like the last thing you want to do because it is the last thing you want to do. That's why we have to train our mouth We have to train our hearts to praise the Lord even when we're losing. Even when our feet are in the stocks, we sing. Even when we're bruised, we sing. Even when the chains are on our wrists, we sing. Because He's still God. He's still good. He's still awesome. He's still amazing. Uh, All right, we're in a bit of a sticky moment, but He's still the Lord God, the King of the universe. And we don't praise him because our circumstances are good. We praise him because he is good. Now, I know it's easy to say that in church, but I had to learn to do that all over again. Pastor, doctor, leader, author. I had to to learn to do all this over again. And it saved my life. I want to say to you, if I hadn't have learned to find God in his presence, I'm not sure I'd have made it. That's the truth, honestly. Being really honest with you. I don't think I would have made it. Does that make sense? Practice of praise places God over self. Secondly, the practice of praise places confession over condition. Love this. Look at the detail in our story. Some of this detail we didn't read. But let me give it to you. Dr. Luke loves detail. And he gives us lots of detail. Verse 19, it says they were dragged into the marketplace. Verse 22, they were stripped and beaten. Verse 23, they were severely flogged. 
Verse 23, they were thrown into prison. Verse 24, he put them in the inner cell. Now the inner cell would have been the darkest, dankest cell. So no lights, no windows, no ventilation. Disease would have been rife. This was, this was the most secure but the most horrible position in the prison. And you'll notice that when the jailer comes uh, to, to get them out, he has to bring lights because it's in pitch black. It's, it's in darkness. Verse 24, their feet are fastened in the stocks. Why does Luke give us all that detail? Because he wants to contrast their condition to their confession. Okay, so, so let's just imagine, let, let's just imagine we just have an audio recording of this story. And we're just listening and we've no idea where we're listening from or what we're listening to. All we can hear as we're listening are two men worshipping Jesus, lifting up the Lord, praying, exalting Him to such an extent that the whole prison... We're listening to them. Every prisoner. Everybody's listening to them. So if me and you just had a podcast of that, this sounds like they're in the middle of a worship seminar in Hillsong, Australia. Or they're in Bethel uh, having their socks blessed off them. Or, or they're sitting under the ministry of Elevation Church. Or, wow, they, they must be in heaven or something. No, they're in prison. If you just listen, what are you hearing? A confession. You don't hear any of the detail Dr. Luke gives us. We only know the detail because Dr. Luke told us. If we went on Paul and Silas's confession, we wouldn't know any of this detail. We only know it because Luke tells us. If you just listen to the confession, you've no idea what they've just gone through. You've no idea where they're sitting. You've no idea that they're in the stocks or they're in the inner cell. Why? Because their confession is completely different from their condition. That's the practice of praise. My goodness, if you and I can find a confession that is above and beyond our condition, we are free before we're released. We're free. Now, this is not hocus pocus. We're not talking about ignoring your condition. But we are talking about bringing a confession over your condition. It's different. And there are some, some people want us to ignore the realities we're facing because somehow to, to confess the fact we're in a prison is a negative confession or to confess the fact, you know, uh, you're having an operation is a negative confession. No, that's not negative. That's just reality. Faith doesn't ignore the facts. Faith faces the facts, but brings a new confession to them. So we're in prison, but we're going to confess that God is good and his love endures forever. That's the confession. That's the confession. Now, if we're just listening to their confession, everything sounds amazing. It's not until someone moves it from a podcast to a live link that we realize, hold on a minute, this is not a worship seminar we're listening to. This is two men in prison. Wow, wow, wow. I don't think, I don't just think the prisoners were listening to them. I think all of heaven was listening to them. I think, I think God said, everybody be quiet. We're going to tune into something totally amazing. Listen to this. 
I don't just think it was the prisoners. I think all of heaven were listening. Why? Because it's not normal. It's not natural. It's not even human to do that. This is a supernatural moment of breakthrough. Their confession bears no correlation to their condition. Wow. Wow. My, my youngest daughter, Beth Ann, you know, she's, she's gorgeous, but she's a bit cheeky sometimes. And she said to me one day, she said, Dad, who's your favorite child? <laughs> cheeky little monkey. Who's your favorite child, she said. And I said to her, well, darling, you are, of course. Because you're, you're my number three, and I'm a number three. You're, you're, you're the last of our children. We will have no other children. It is assured. 100%. The deed has been done. No other children will come from the fruit of my loins. It's all over. You are, you know, they think it's all over, but it is now. It definitely, you are the last one. So I said to her, you're number three. I'm a number three. You're the last in my tribe. That's it. You're my favorite. And she went to walk away. I said, hold on a minute. I said, but, but let me just say this. Simeon is also my favorite. Because he's my only son. I have two girls, one boy. He's my only, he's, so he's my favorite because he's my only son. And then she went to walk away again. I said, hold it. I said, Elena is also my favorite because she's my firstborn. The first out of her mother's womb. Something biblically very, very powerful about the idea of the firstborn, the first fruits being given unto God. He said, so, so Elena's my favorite because she's my firstborn. Simeon's my favorite because he's my only son. And you're my favorite because you're number three. And she just looked at me and she went, oh God. And sort of walked away, disgusted at this egalitarian view of favoritism, uh, which I had presented to her. And sometimes people say to me, John, do you have a favorite book? And asking an author, does he, does he or she have a favorite book, is a little bit like asking, do you have a favorite child? You really don't, but they are favorite for different reasons. And, and this book stands out for me as a favorite because of the context of its writing. I, I'd wanted to write this book for a while. Some of you have come across it. Last time I was here, I preached on this. It's the story of the woman anointing Jesus in Luke 7. And Dawn will tell you, I wanted to write this book for an awful long time. Didn't really feel equipped to do it. Didn't feel, didn't feel good enough to do it in many ways. And so I, I, I'd wanted to write this. And the Holy Spirit asked me to start writing this book in the middle of this journey with Simeon. Right? And, and, and that was the best moment to write it and the worst moment to write it. And I need to say this to you. I loved writing this book. But without exception, every page of this book, I literally had to make myself sit down and write this. I literally, I had times when I wrote pages on this book where I would come away from the laptop and cry in the presence of God, where I would literally just lift up my hands to the Lord, say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I want my perfume to flow, but, but I, I don't feel like I've got anything to offer to you. And in, my, in the midst of my brokenness, I was writing about a story of worship. And the more I focused on her worship, the more it lifted my confession. And this book, every page of it, is a confession 
over condition. Now, let, let me say that, that, the script, that the final manuscript of this book was finished in June 2016. I was informed July 2016 that I was losing my job. In September 2016, this book was released. In October 2016, my son went to court. That's the context. Now, most people will read this book and never, ever know the context of this. Some of you have this book. And, and maybe if, if you read it, it will, it will encourage you that every page of that, this is not, this is not sort of a, a superhuman, this is an ordinary person in their brokenness making their confession over their condition. If I'd have, if I'd have listened to my condition, that book would never have been written. Never, ever in a million years would I've written anything. And it's one of my favorite books. It's touched a lot of people. It's encouraged. It still inspires me. It's still, I have, I have the picture of the woman hanging in my bedroom. It's the most amazing thing. It continues to speak to me. Her perfume continues to fill my world. It's the most remarkable thing. And yet not once did I want to write that book. As a human, I felt like I couldn't. Everything in my world was screaming, you can't write this book. Your son's going to go to jail. Your family's in disarray. The whole thing's falling apart. I mean, none of that was happening, but it felt like it was happening. I felt like my feet were in the stocks and God handed me a laptop and said, well, you're not going anywhere. You may as well write something while you're waiting. Now, it's a bit, it's a bit facetious, that, but not far from the truth. I, I, I wrote a dedication in this. Please forgive me for my self-indulgence, but let me just say this as I move on. The dedication is this, to my amazing family. Over the last year, we have walked through the valley of the shadow, yet you have continued to love, serve, and give extravagantly. Few will understand the cost, but the Lord delights in your perfume. Thank you. He blesses the home of the righteous. And that phrase, he blesses the home of the righteous, is from Proverbs chapter 3. And I had that statement put on uh, the, the uh, landing wall of our home. So as you come down the stairs to the hallway, the big wall, the landing wall, uh, I had this, this put, he blesses the home of the righteous. And I want to tell you, every single day the devil used that against me. I would walk down the stairs, and without exception, I could hear his lie say, he blesses the home of the righteous. Your home's falling apart. Your son's going to go to jail. This is going to destroy you. This blah. And every single day, I would look at that confession. He blesses the home of the righteous, and the devil would laugh at me. But every single day, I learned to make the confession. He blesses the home of the righteous. See, if we can find confession in whatever condition we're in, a confession that is above the condition, we're free. You're free. Paul and Silas were free long before the prison door opened. Why? Because they found a confession that did not reflect their condition. Their condition was horrible, and yet they found something in God. And, and we can look at that as, well, that's Paul, that's Silas. They're, they're just like supermen, aren't they? No, they're not. They're ordinary men, ordinary people. They're going through a horrible and difficult experience, and yet they find something in God. And there are some of us in this room, can I just say, that we will need to find a new confession. 
Not reciting the condition, but actually bringing a confession of who God is over that condition. Bringing a, not ignoring the condition, but not allowing the conversation about the condition to drive the conversation, but actually have a confession above that. And, and we had to learn that. We, there were days when, when it, it, it wanted to dominate every conversation of our family. But we had to find a new confession. Paul and Silas pray and sing hymns to God. Confession over condition. Here's the last we thought, and then we're going we're gonna to finish. The practice of praise, lastly and finally, places faith over feelings. I want you to notice this, this lovely, gorgeous piece of detail. Many a preacher, I'm sure, has preached on this phrase. Verse 25, chapter 16, about midnight. About midnight. There's something about midnight. It's a weird moment, right? It's in our culture, it's the ending of one day and the beginning of a new day. So you get this weird moment for Paul and Silas, a new day has begun, but it still looks like the old day. They've entered into something new, but it feels like it's still old. It's still the same old story, still the same old situation, yet they've entered into something new. And who knows that at midnight, time slows down. I mean, unless you're in a party. Time slows down. I've noticed that, that at 2 o'clock in the morning or at 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, like, like five minutes takes about five hours. You know, when you're, when you're with your friends, when you're having dinner with your friends, when you're out having a great holiday, two weeks goes in two minutes, doesn't it? You're on holiday, you've just unpacked your case, and you're repacking it again. You're going, How did that happen? We spent the whole year getting ready for this, and it's gone in two minutes. That's the most, why? Because you're not thinking about the time. You're having the most amazing time. Your focus is on something else. But, but when you wake up at midnight, when you wake up at one in the morning, when you wake up at two in the morning, and there are fears and there are worries and there are anxieties and there are things that are getting to you, and the enemy is whispering into your mind, my goodness, that, that ticking of the clock slows down. And at midnight, at midnight, they speak this confession. My goodness, at the darkest moment, the darkest hour, that slowest moment, God does something. Literally, this liminal space, this in-between moment, they learn to worship and praise the Lord. I know this is difficult for Dawn, but I'll share it with you. My, my midnight moment in the whole journey with Simeon was, was the day we discovered he was self-harming. So, so it's one thing to be facing uh, an accusation that's false. It's one thing to be facing the possibility of going to court and all of that means now, now my son is, is cutting his body. And that was my midnight. That was, that was the dark side of the moon for me. That was the moment where the darkness closed in on me. Dawn is the hero of this moment. Dawn's the hero of the midnight hour. She stepped up and was amazing and incredible and outstanding. And I will be eternally grateful for an incredible woman who, in the darkest moment of this journey for me, 
and in many ways for my son, she was, she was light and strength and generosity and grace and courage. She was amazing. Because to come home from church and find your son in the pool of his own blood, it's very disturbing. I can't tell you what it does to you as a parent. Maybe some of you know. It's one thing for your son to be accused of something, to see your son slash his arms. I've never seen that before. Now, I've dealt with families who've dealt with it and have pastored families who've dealt with it, but that's somebody else's son. You know what I mean? Not mine. To see your son slash his arms, and he, was, he had spiraled into a terrible depression. He was under medication uh, because of this and also under a counselor. And I thank God for, for wonderful counselors Thank God for, for medication it helped. And he literally became this, he went from being this bright, uh, vivacious, funny boy to being this uh, depressed, uh, morose uh, uh, young man. Absolutely, he just, he just disappeared. He, his, the lights were on, but no one was at home. He disappeared. He was right in front of me, but he was gone. I've, I've never seen anything like it. It is the most incredible, incredible journey we were on. Other pressures were going on around our family at that time. And we were literally, for three weeks in July, we literally had our son on suicide watch. And when I spoke to him, I sat with him. And, and he, he would relate to you that this is one of the turning points for him. But I remember re, uh, sitting with him and I said, son, I, I don't understand why you're doing this. He said, son, he said to me, dad, I cut my arms to numb the pain of my mind. Now, I don't understand that. All right. I, I, emotionally, I don't understand it. I, I, I've, I've learned to understand it. I've learned the science of it. I've, I've tried to understand what people go through. But, but as a dad speaking to his son, it just wasn't computing. And I said to him, son, I said, son, every, every time you cut your arms, you're cutting my heart. I said, I, I don't know what to do with this. You have to help me. And that was my darkest moment. Now, let me be really honest. Don, Don knows this, and she's given me permission to say this. But if you'd have walked into, if Phil had have walked into my world right then and said to me, here's a one-way ticket for you to Mars, I'd have taken it. I'm just being really honest with you. I love Dawn. I love my family. But fear got inside me. Something got inside me. And I just wanted to run. I couldn't look at my son. I couldn't look at his arms. I couldn't look at the blood. I couldn't look at the scars. I was, I was just, I was in free fall inside. And I knew I had to get up every day and face the world and go to work and do what I had to do, and open my Bible, and release a book. And, and, and everything within me wanted to run, but I knew this. Here's what I knew. I knew if I started running, I'd never come back. That's the truth. In the midst of that, I did run, but I ran to the presence of God. I remember falling on my face before God, and I said, God, I need you. You've got to help me. I don't think I can do this. I don't. I, do you know that verse that said he won't allow you to be tempted above that which you can bear? I'm thinking, right, I think I've just found the exception to that rule. I'm, I'm the man that this is not going to work for. And I felt that I was, I, I, an analogy I would give to you, I felt like I was in the water and I was literally 
like the water was up to my chin. That's what it felt like. I felt like I just had my mouth out of the water. That's how I felt. And I said to the Lord, you've got to help me. I don't know if I can do this anymore. And the Lord spoke to me from Psalm 34. Because even though I'd recited that psalm every day, at that moment, I forgot it. Because that happens. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and here's what he said to me. He reminded me from Psalm 34, verse 20. It's a gorgeous phrase. It says this, He protects, that's the Lord, protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. The Holy Spirit said to me, none of your bones will be broken. At that moment, I didn't know if I was going to survive, never mind my son. But the Lord said to me, not one of your bones will be broken. And everything within me wanted to run. And the only thing that stopped me running was the word of the Lord. I, I literally grabbed it. It was like, let's go back to the water analogy. It was like I grabbed the life raft. It was like I grabbed this float that was in the water and I just grabbed it. And I literally just held on to it because I felt if I let go of this, I'm going to drown. I'm going under. And the Holy Spirit said to me, none of your bones will be broken. If I'd have gone on my feelings, I'd have left. Is that okay? Hope you don't think less of me because of that. I'm just telling you the truth. If I'd have gone on my feelings and I started running that day, I'd have never come back. I'd have run all the way to Australia. That's the truth. Because I was afraid. I was broken. I was lost. And the only thing that held me was the word of the Lord. And at that moment, faith, faith, bossed my feelings. Faith said to my feelings, no, no, you're not going to win. You're not going to rule. Faith enabled me to believe the word of the Lord. And the Lord was true to his word. You know, we ended up in court and it was a horrific experience. Five days I will never forget. We will never forget. It felt like 50 years not five days. Talk about time dragging. My goodness, it was, it was agonizing. And on the Thursday, uh, so we had been in court Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. On the Thursday, we were hoping that the judge would dismiss the jury so that they would then uh, consider the case and then we would get a verdict Thursday or Friday, probably Friday. And so that's what the plan was. Thursday morning, a friend of mine sent me a text called Rachel. Rachel's a wonderful woman of God. And Rachel said, John, I was praying for your family this morning. And from Psalm 37, the Lord says this to you. Simeon will be vindicated by noon. Now, if any of you know the court system at all, uh, that, that sounded impossible. The jury hadn't even been dismissed at this point. If everything went to plan, we, we might get the jury dismissed by noon. And then, and then they, they would go and sit and consider this verdict. And so you're going, my goodness, I, I trust Rachel. This feels like the word of the Lord. And so, so we grabbed onto this word because our feelings said this isn't going to work. But the word of the Lord came. 
So we grabbed this word. We went to court. At a quarter to 11, the jury was dismissed. And we were sitting with our barrister. And at 25 past 11, the jury called us back in. Now, some of you have been through experiences where you know that if a jury called you back that quickly, it's a slam dunk either way, right? It's, you're either going, going to jail or they're going to set you free. And, and, and we're called back in. In fact, the jury called us back in so quickly that they couldn't find the judge. It took them 10 minutes to find the judge. He hadn't expected to be called back. The judge came in. The jury, four, four persons stood and announced to the world that my son was not guilty, right? Now, now listen, you can imagine the tsunami of emotion at that moment. We hugged each other. We hugged each other so much that the, they literally had to escort us out of the courtroom, right? You have to get out. There's another case waiting to be heard. We walked out to Newton Street, the street leading to the Crown Court. I looked at my watch and it was exactly noon. Now, listen. Why couldn't God have done that 18 months before? That would have been helpful. (laughs) Then we wouldn't have had the self-harming, the depression, the medication, the fear. We'd have missed all of that. We'd have bypassed all of that. We, We just would have had a little bit of a story to tell. Why? I don't know why. All I know is this, we went through the darkest valley of our life and he was with us. And there are moments when your feelings will tell you you're alone, but he is with you. There are moments when your feelings will tell you to run, but the word of the Lord will hold you steady. There are moments when your feelings will tell you, you are finished. It is over. It is done. But the word of the Lord says, it's not over till God says it's over. And we hang on to his word and believe. Paul and Silas declare by faith that God is good and their feet are in the stocks. The bruises are still uh, uh, developing on their body. They have been stripped. They have been humiliated. And yet they declare to the world that God is good. They are free before they are released. And because of their faithfulness in their valley, men and women come to faith. And have their lives transformed. The jailer and his family come into the kingdom of God. Because two people got free before they were released. Hey look, I'm going to pray in a moment. I'm not minimizing. Don't know if the band want to join me. You guys still here? If you want to join me, you can. I'm not minimizing anybody's pain this afternoon. Not at all. But I do want to say this to you. If you wait for the release, until we give God his praise, then we will miss an opportunity of victory and an opportunity of freedom that only comes when we learn to praise him in the prison, when we learn to praise him in the valley, when we learn to praise him in this moment. And if we can sing when we're not winning, Something supernatural happens. Now hear hear me now. I'm I'm nearly done. You've been really patient. But thank you for listening so well. But listen. The devil wants you to shut up. 
Or if you're going to open your mouth, you're going to talk nonsense. That's what he wants. He wants you to be quiet. He wants you to be in your stocks and just suck it up. But the Lord, in the midst of your stocks, in the midst of the prison, in the midst of the valley, he says to you, sing. Come on, sing to me. If you will sing, something supernatural can be released. We're not just singing some weird song. We're singing the confession of our heart. We're singing something we believe. Even though it doesn't look like what we believe works. At this moment, it doesn't look like it works. People would say to us, there's no smoke without fire, John. Oh my goodness, I want to tell you that was one of the most cruel things I've heard in this three-year journey in my life. To hear that, it's like someone plunging a dagger into you. There's no smoke without fire. Well, well, listen to me, listen to me. If, if we listen to that sort of confession, we're dead. It's over. And in the midst of that confession, we would lift up our voice and say, God is good. And His love endures forever. God is good even when there's scars on His arm. God is good even when we're in crown court. God is good even when we lose our job. God is good even when the world thinks we're guilty. God is good. God is good. God is good. God is good. I can't change what the world thinks. I can't change the circumstances I'm in. But I can hold on to this one dynamic true confession. God is good. And if I can learn to lift that up, even in the midst of feelings and conditions and circumstances that are against me, something supernatural gets released. Something supernatural gets released. Now I'm not, I'm not ignoring your pain. I'm not encouraging you to ignore your pain. I'm not, I'm not saying forget your pain. I'm saying sing over your pain. I'm saying, sing over the prison. Sing over your children. Sing over the self-harming. Sing over the addiction. Sing over the disappointment. Sing over the situation that you're in. Sing that God is good and His love endures forever. And invite the earthquake. Invite God to do what only God can do. And even if the key doesn't turn for another few hours, even if release doesn't come until daylight, You'll be free until then. You'll be free even though you're not released. Now come on, stand with me. Thank you for listening and we trust that the Word of God has inspired you today. For further information about King's Church or to access our large archive of other recordings, go to www.kingscambridge.org If you're listening on iTunes, we would love you to leave us some feedback. God bless and goodbye.